0: Hello
1: everyone, welcome back to Geek Warning, brought to you by the Escape Collective. I'm James Huang. I'm joined here in our virtual studio with tech editor Dave Rome, Ace Mechanic, Zach Edwards of the Zach Edwards of the Boulder Gruppetto, and special guest Brad Copeland, who you probably know from his spending the last decade or so on the World Cup cross-country circuit as a pro mechanic for the likes of Kate Courtney. He's now finally settled down as the service manager for Hush Money Bikes in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Kaylee is on daddy duty today, so he will not be joining us. He may be lurking in the background somewhere, though. Uh,
2: Dave, I've got a standard question for you. Mm. What's your latest tool purchase? Uh, as you do, it's 7 a.m. here, and I've already bought a tool this morning. Um <laughs> how is
1: that possible? <laughs> Seriously, how is that possible? Uh
2: I I, I bought another chain breaker because uh, I made the mistake of posting a lot of chain breakers on Instagram, which then made me realize which ones I'm missing. Um it's a tool I've used before, but anyway, now now I'll own the latest version. So uh feeling like um Yeah, I might have a problem. You might.
1: You yeah. you you do. But but it's okay, Dave. We we love you all the same. Maybe even more so because of this little problem of yours. Great. Zach, you've got a very interesting assortment of bikes on the wall here. I'm curious, what's been your weirdest repair of the last week? Oh, weirdest repair on the spot. Um, I feel
3: like nothing really that odd. All pretty standard things, I would say. I mean, I've got a downhill bike here, which is very unusual. Mm.
0: But
1: There are no aero bars in the building right now.
3: No aero bars, yeah. No, no TT or tri-bikes. What's wow. the downhill
1: bike? That is... Uh, V10. Oh, okay.
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Brad, Welcome to this show. It's so good to have you on here. Thank you. Thank
0: you. It's nice to be here.
1: How's uh? How's life in Lancaster, Pennsylvania?
0: Good. I got my dog here. It's a notice for you. She's a big part of my decisions to uh, settle down in life.
1: All right. Well, we uh, we had just we just wrapped up the opening round of the UCI World Cup Cross Country Mountain Bike Circuit in Novomesto, Czech Republic. And while Geek Warning is not always a mountain bike-centric show, uh, it will be today because we have quite a lot to talk about there. Uh, We do have a bunch of new cross-country race bikes from Cervelo, Pinarello, and Villier. We've got another new bike that was conspicuously absent from this past weekend – uh, and we're going to talk about some new brands that maybe are using the World Cup as a way to earn credibility. So we'll see. If we, we'll see if we have enough time to discuss that little topic. Uh, however, the big reason we have both Brad and Zach here today is we are recording this episode live in front of a uh, in, in front of an audience of our Escape Collective members. And we're going to be taking a whole bunch of member questions on all things related to service, maintenance, repair, and tech. Basically, if there's anything you've ever wanted to ask a pro bike mechanic, now is your chance. However, only if you are a member of Escape Collective. So if you're already a member and you're with us on the show today, thanks very much. But if you're not, we'll be doing these live shows every month or two or so, and feel free to sign up whenever you can so you can join in on the fun. All right, well, let's start talking about these new mountain bikes first and foremost. Uh, Maybe the one that we should talk about right at the top here is the one that Tom Pitcock was using to win uh, both the Short Track and the XCO. We get this new Pinarello Dogma XC. Uh, It's definitely not a secret at this point it officially was introduced just a few days ago uh i'd say it's a pretty standard cross-country formula at this point it's a single pivot flex day rear end it's pretty short travel just 90 or 100 millimeters depending on what position the shock mount to set in um and similarly kind of like semi-progressive geometry based on well i guess pretty close to what a lot of others uh, a lot of others are using right now uh fully internal cable riding, mm, Yay. <laughs> Um, but however I'd say probably the truly unique feature on that bike is the fact that it doesn't have a chainstay bridge at all and both sides of the rear end are molded separately Uh, and to join those rear ends together the back end has uh, well each side has sort of like a a semi-stub axle sort of setup with a hearth joint in between to join the two together similar to what you have on like a campy ultra-torque crankset. I mean clearly works Uh, Pinarello says that it lets them uh, have a little bit more mud clearance on the back. It theoretically gives them a little bit more tire clearance, although they only officially approve it for a 235. Um, it's pretty neat, though. I mean, I was kind of ready to sort of write off this Pinarello as sort of just like a branding or a style exercise, but I don't know. Seems like it could potentially be the real deal. What do we think here?
2: Looks good. Seems to go fast.
0: Undefeated uh, in the mm. men's field so far. So <laughs> <laughs> it's a good way to good way to it start. Is, the, it, it is off. two for two.
1: That's, that's correct.
0: Yeah, three for three, technically, if you count the race in poor Switzerland. Oh, the yeah, yeah that's, that's
1: before, right. Almost, I mean, I I dare say Pinarello picked, you know, sort of hit, picked the right horse to hitch its wagon to, huh? I think the thing that
3: immediately stood out to me is the most Pinarello part is by the bottom bracket. Just above it, they have a very Pinarello shaped cutout bridge thing that seemingly all it does is make it so you can't have two water bottles.
1: That does yeah. seem a little odd. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it does seem odd. I mean, Pinarello says that, I think they said it makes the bike like a little stiffer at the bottom bracket or something, but I can't help but wonder if it's mainly just a styling exercise. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Zach, as you mentioned, the fact that it takes up the space that you would probably be able to fit a second water bottle in is kind of a bummer. I mean, maybe it's different for
0: bigger
2: sizes, yeah. Yeah. although... Pidcook's bike's pretty small. Yeah. So.
0: yeah, I think he and Pauline ride the same frame size, if I'm not mistaken.
3: But you think that like... They're trying to make marathon mountain bike races also big right now. So you would think that having the inclusion of two water bottles would, would go along with that a bit.
1: So you would think. But I mean, Tom only needs one bottle, right? And Pauline That's, only needs one bottle, yep. at least during a race anyway. And hmm. I I mean either way, the bike looks pretty good. Like again, it looks like it could be the real deal. I'm really curious to throw a leg over this thing when they become available. Um it's not gonna be until I think later this calendar year, I believe, Oh, well, I guess it would kind of have to be. Uh, they haven't announced pricing. They haven't announced a uh, frame weight or anything, but my guess is both of those numbers will probably be a little bit more than we would prefer for them to be uh, on the weight side, mainly just because it's Pinarello. They're not really known for making stuff super, super light, but it is, it's going to be expensive. Um, Brad, I'm kind of curious to hear your take on that hearth joint uh, assembly that they're using there. And uh, I mean, Again, Campagnolo has used that for ages and ages and ages, and it it works fine. Um, I know we've never seen those things fail. Typically, Uh, do we think that there might be any more likelihood that those things that that joint could come apart in the field? And mainly, what I'm wondering about is, I I don't know, mountain bikers sometimes aren't the absolute best at maintaining their stuff. Um, Although, I guess in this in this situation, I suppose. Assuming that frame was assembled properly to begin with, I guess, maybe the thing that we would have to worry about is that bolt might get seized over time and just never come out as opposed to coming loose, huh?
0: Yeah, and, um, you know, depending on the spindle type uh, and material type on the Campy cranks, they use a reverse thread on the Taiwan, if I'm not mistaken. It's been a while since I last played with one of those, but it, that, that seems to be what I recall. Um, <clears throat> so, I mean, maybe they haven't obviously seen this bike too up close and personal yet uh, either, but I would be curious to know if they're using reverse thread or normal thread or if they're specking Loctite or anti-seize or or what. I know, I mean, obviously my experience has been with Scott's uh, primarily for the last several years. Um, and they had a few bolts on the bike, particularly the upper eyelet shock bolt uh, that would back out routinely if you didn't do some creative Loctite uh, preparation on that bolt too. So um, while they may have their, and, yeah, and you're right, mountain bikers don't always take the time to do a bolt check or torque everything or apply Loctite and clean things and redo it every so often, like they maybe should do. Um, <clears throat> but I imagine that, uh, at least Pauline and Tom won't have that problem. I know both their mechanics well, and, uh, those guys are dialed. So, I'm, I doubt some we're going to see on their bikes, but for sure it's going to be another thing to keep in mind for those of us who encounter these bikes in real life.
1: Well, yeah, Brad, I think it'd be safe to say that, uh, yeah, both Tom and Pauline probably have their bikes sorted, but, uh, it, looked like it, it. it did seem like it. Unfortunately, they had a well. I should say, unfortunately unfor- for them, but unfortunately for Evie Richards, she had, had not quite as good of a time. But uh, yeah. we can get to that in a little bit because I have another question about that. Um, yeah. Let's move on to another bike that was introduced recently. Uh, Dave, you wrote up this new Villier that that uh, our photographer Piper Albrecht, spotted
2: in the pits in Novemesto. What do we have there? Yeah, the uh, the Urta Max SLR. It's Villier's. Uh, Next generation, 120 mil travel XC race bike. Uh, kind of a, almost a marathon race bike, I guess. Um, it's quite interesting because their, their 100 mil travel bike was only released like uh, six, roughly 18 months ago. So it's quite a quick update, revamp of it. And there are quite a few signs that they, they perhaps had another iteration of uh, design changes to have, to have happen. So yeah, it's uh, much more progressive in geometry compared to the previous bike uh the weights weren't necessarily uh no weights claim like pinarello um uh, but yeah it's it's a very high-end bike probably very comparable to that pinarello being uh, an italian road uh racing heritage company so yeah it's a very familiar form factor that we're seeing from a lot of brands at the moment uh with the that shock sort of just placed a uh, horizontal of the top tube and uh with a uh i guess a rocker link there for for stiffening up the rear end Looks good though. Good.
1: It does look pretty good. Although I think uh as you mentioned, Dave, it does certainly seem like pretty much every high end bike in that travel category and certainly in that in, in that uh sort of racing category, everyone's using a single pivot flex day for the most part. I guess proven formula, everyone's gotten it to work. It's light. Why not?
2: Yeah. It- uh oh, I was just I was just gonna add that it's like for me it's kind of thinking back four or five years ago maybe three or four years ago now we had a bunch of aero bikes released all within a month of each other there was like the propel and the the scott foil and a, a few others and uh you could do like a silhouette challenge with them you could just blank out all the light and just leave the silhouette of the bike and you could play a, like you know pick the bike and it was pretty hard like i remember actually making that silhouette challenge and i couldn't even get it at afterwards um and uh, I feel like XC bikes are in this in the same point right now. There's there's a lot of bikes that uh, you kind of need a few different angles of in order to pick them out. Well, and I feel like now
1: they're all the XC bikes are almost harder to tell apart than those aero road bikes even now. Yeah. Um, and then speaking of which, you know another one that we have to talk about is this new Cervelo this uh, this ZFS five, which is Cervelo uh, is a terrible name. Just FYI, <laughs> um, it is yet another. Carbon fiber, single pivot, flex day bike. Um, it's, I mean, it it is, I mean, they say it's completely different from a Santa Cruz blur, but like, I mean, it's basically a Santa Cruz blur. Looks like just a slightly updated blur. It's, it's probably more likely a preview of what the next generation blur is going to end up being, or probably very similar. Um, but it's another 100 or 120 mil rear end, uh, depending on what shock stroke you stick on there. Um, similar fit to the current blur. Uh, the main difference is it just has a half degree slacker head tube angle uh, and he- and uh, cable routing through the headset, which I love. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, as I said, it, it likely previews the next generation blur, although I kind of wonder actually if the blur is going to kind of leapfrog this one a little bit and go even more progressive with its geometry, because the previous blur, or I should say the current generation blur is, I'd say, pretty up to date for the most part. Um but it definitely could stand to have a few tweaks here and there. And I wonder if this next generation one will kind of go even more kind of burly.
2: Yeah. I mean, the, the blur is not, not that old, is it? It's like, I remember it got released right around the time that like a uh, Cannondale updated their, um, their scalpel. So, I mean, it was kind of part of that first wave of really lightweight spikes where the shock had been placed underneath the top tube and, and a lot of the frames had moved to a flex pivot instead of a, a pivot at the dropout. So yeah, it's it's still a very competitive bike, the Blur, so it sort of makes sense that Civello only needed to tweak a uh, half a degree here and there.
1: Yeah, I mean, they said, they did admit flat out that all of the hard points are completely borrowed from the Blur. They actually got the, the, the technical details from Santa Cruz directly, um, which is probably not entirely hard to do, considering they're both under the same parent company at this point. Um But uh, yeah, this one is going to be out quite a bit sooner. Uh, I think they're going to be on the water in just a few weeks. And
2: I suppose they have one on the way. Maybe it'll be here in just a few weeks. So fingers crossed on that one. Nice. There is actually one more bike, which is uh, of interest from Novomesto, and that is uh, the lack of the specialized Epic World Cup. Which is the then latest and greatest do it all race bike? Uh, so, 110 mil travel front, 75 mil rear. We've spoken about it previously on the podcast, uh, and I thought that was going to be like their one bike to get them through the season and just they'd adjust the suspension to to vary what they need out of each course. But it seems that that's not the case because uh, Christopher Blevins and some of his teammates uh, were actually seen at Nova Mesto on the Epic evo which is a 120 mil travel bike which is then modified with remote lockouts which the epic evo normally doesn't have uh i thought that was quite an interesting choice and i saw blevin's posted this on instagram and of course everyone's asking what happens the to your new bike and his response was uh it'll probably be 50 50 throughout the season that he'll pick the new bike the short travel new bike or he'll be on the 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 epic evo um For me, super interesting because I was questioning whether the trend, everyone, Scott started it, but everyone seemed to be going to 120 mil travel bikes uh, with their new releases. And I was questioning whether Specialized had made the right decision there. And it seems like for every, not every course, uh, shorter travel is better. So Brad, you probably have an opinion on this.
0: I do uh, I so Nova Mesa is a very interesting one um, because it has a lot of pavement sections and fire road type stuff where it's super smooth and might as well be paved plus the track that they start and finish the lap on um, so I think the ability to fully lock that bike out which on the evo doesn't have a brain um, so you have a manual lockout for both fork and shock and so perhaps that might have been what. That plus in the, the fact when you need the suspension, it's a burly, uh, track. And so it's like a bit of both, um, into the spectrum combined. It's maybe less middle ground. Like you might choose the the new bike for that's my speculation. Um, but maybe that plus having not that many races under his belt, uh, for Chris in particular, uh, on the new bike, maybe he's popping for something a little more conventional that he's used to rather than hop on the new bike for, uh. For the debut in Movimasto, but it's conjecture, well, but I was interested by that too.
1: Well, Dave, you actually have that bike on hand right now, and, I, mm. and I, know you've been, uh, I know you've been riding it a little bit. So based on your ride impressions so far, I mean, do you think it could be a one-bike solution for cross-country racing, or does it seem maybe a little too close to a hardtail?
2: Uh, it's certainly not a hardtail. Like, there's way more forgiveness and, and traction in the rear wheel with this bike, Uh. But yeah, suddenly seventy five mil of travel is not hundred and twenty mil of travel. Um I checked, the math works out, they're not the same number. Uh, and <laughs> I would say that that makes a difference when, when terrain gets really rough and technical. Wait, but 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 Dave, I mean specialized does say it's sort of the same number because we went mm. through this already. Remember yeah. that. Yeah, because, because you're not it, running SAG. Seg- yeah.
1: Right. Yeah. Right. It's it's
2: so it's the same. <laughs> yeah Um, it's not the same it actually on big impacts like you take it off a drop it actually does feel incredibly um sufficient like it it does feel like there's way more there but i guess over everything else and say when you're attacking over like a a technical climb for example you can feel that it's it's kind of limited and it does feel stiffer and less forgiving um and in turn probably less traction uh than what you'd expect of a, a bike with longer travel uh so i guess to be overly critical like if you're coming off a specialized epic which had a brain on it before it's it's probably a pretty familiar feel but uh if you're coming off a a bike with active suspension then it's uh yeah it's it's something that i'm still getting used to we'll put it that way it's early days i mean i for one oh sorry go ahead brad
0: i was gonna say the thing that um kind of intrigued me about that design And I haven't ridden it, so I I can't really say uh, how I feel about it with any factual basis or backing it up. But uh, a bike with no sag or very limited sag, it seems sort of counterintuitive compared to what I think most brands have been doing lately. And I think that's an advantage of having a longer travel bike is you kind of can set it up maybe softer than you would before. Maybe how you actually should set up a suspension bike with the appropriate amount of sag where maybe in cross-country bikes with shorter travel in the past, you might have made it a little bit firmer to resist that bottom out, uh, on some more aggressive parts of the track. Um, and so for me that, and like when Scott moved to 120 mil and even before they released the new, the new spark, uh, our team was running 120 mil kind of modified versions of the old spark, um, kind of under the radar, but, uh, it was for that reason. And they could set them up nice and soft. And then you had plenty of, um, you know, when you're in the sag, you have a lot more corning traction, pedaling traction, that kind of thing. And so, I found it to be a peculiar move for Specialized, but I'm sure it'll have its day yeah, before no the doubt. season is over.
1: Uh, Brad, what courses do you think we might see this thing? I presume something a little bit smoother than what we had in Novi Mesto.
0: Yeah, I would think so. Leah Gang is a is a strong one where people in the past have been kind of teetering on the choice of hardtail or full suspension bike still. All status, obviously, off the calendar. That would have been a, a good one for it. Um, a lot of people were still opting for hardtails there, although I would say over the last... Five years, especially, it was becoming more and more of a full suspension course. Um, you know, I bet I bet they'll race it at Worlds. I bet they'll race it uh, at some of the bigger, like at the finals. Races where there's a lot on the line, Specialized tends to put some um, extra bonuses on certain events when they have marketing goals. And uh, that's something that I got a little taste of when I was there for a few years back in the day. So. Uh, I have a feeling there's going to be some emphasis, especially that it's getting some media attention that it was not raced on despite its debut to much, you know, fanfare. And I'm sure everybody's Instagram feed that day was full of nothing but that bike. Um, I know mine was. And so uh, I, I would expect the team to be on that as, as much as, you know, management can convince them to. Although I remember a few years ago, I think it was 2020 in the fall and had a very short uh, world cup season, which was only Nova Mesto a bunch of times in a row. Uh, I think Laura Stinger raced a hardtail there. Um, So there's no accounting for, uh, and she had quite a good race, I might add. And so there's no, you never know what what is influencing a rider where they want to sort of optimize for a certain part of the track where they plan to do their attack or whatever whatever they have in mind. So we'll see, but I have a feeling the marketing department is going to uh, emphasize some of their own interests uh, to the team after this one.
1: Hmm. Uh, Well, Speaking of marketing, that kind of leads me into this next thing I wanted to talk about, which um, probably the – I guess I can call it a surprise performance, at least in the men's XCO, uh, was Dubo on that Rockrider. Um, and the thing that kind of strikes me about that whole situation is we have um, at least two situations or two cases in, in the field where we have companies that are not particularly known for having high-end product. Um, clearly trying to move upscale in, 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 at least in the mountain bike world. Uh, so we had like Dubo on that, on that rock rider and then like, uh, Henrique Amensini on the Caloy. Um, they're both on pretty high-end bikes. Uh, both of those companies are not necessarily known for a high-end, uh, super shishi build or anything. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, Dubo in particular put that rock rider on quite a spotlight that, that day, uh. Brad, in your experience, do you, do you see, or do you hear of a bunch of, I mean, I guess what sort of purpose does this sort of serve for those bikes? I guess, uh, for those companies, I guess it just sort
0: of gives them a little bit more legitimacy
1: in that market. Does it seem?
0: I think so. I mean, uh, I think that's kind of the original purpose of racing as a function of a marketing department for most of the, the brands that, uh, are sponsored by a big bike company or bike adjacent company. Um, so i'm 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 happy that it's that companies are still viewing World Cup racing as kind of a preeminent or premier format for marketing their products um, obviously it's a big investment uh, it's not just given bikes but it's you know salaries for a dozen people or more all the travel I mean that's a big time commitment from a brand that is relatively small so it suggests to me that they are kind of investing heavily in this i mean enrique avancini is a huge name last year in brazil i mean he couldn't walk outside without being mobbed by you know 100 people and had like bodyguards and stuff to move through the venue and it was crazy so it's a brazilian brand um colloid, that is and so uh you know maybe this is also getting giving us some insight into what avancini's future is going to be after racing i know he's probably getting towards the tail end of a pretty successful career and we've heard some rumors about maybe being his last year after the Olympics next time around. So, um, after Paris next year, so we'll, we'll see, but, um, I think it's cool. I think it's, uh, well, you know, it, it's obviously working. We're talking about it after, uh, Dubot's big day. And uh, I would say we probably wouldn't be talking about him or that bike. Um, you know, this will be the first time we've talked about him or that bike uh, after a World Cup, I think, uh, in any significant way. So uh, it was a great day for him. I always like to see somebody unexpected pop up and uh, deliver on a big stage like that. So for me, it was very exciting. Obviously, I hoped, I think we all probably secretly, at least partially, hoped that he would uh, stay ahead of Tom for the last lap of that race. But uh, it's, it's a tall order. Um, but nevertheless, it was a good look, and and I would say it did legitimize the bike to a degree because uh, it proved that it's at least capable with the right rider on top of it to uh, to get it to pretty pretty high step on that podium. So good job to him and good job to them.
1: Yeah, I think it's super cool to go just even transition in this conversation that we're having from you know the brand that arguably has the biggest marketing budget, marketing muscle in the industry and to the other side of the coin to two companies that – really have like as you said like they're significantly well significantly smaller in that space at least i mean rock rider is the house brand of decathlon which is just massive massive outdoor retailer um but it is pretty cool to see that those bikes i guess didn't really seem to hold either of those
0: two back all that much as far as we can tell yeah, yeah. um yeah avancini Avincini had a little bit of a hiccup with his uh, early in the season where he i'm sure we all saw the video where he had, there's a drop uh, on the racetrack and his left seat stay uh imploded <laughs> uh which might be a little bit of a marketing mm. the wrong direction for Coloy, but um i don't know, there aren't too many brands you can point out who haven't had something like that happen even the big ones who are quite successful but uh
2: it's so funny because i'm so used to seeing him as a cannondale rider that i just assumed it was a scalpel that had failed like i you know you just and like the brand starts with c as well it's like you just connect the two and you're like ah oh, no not cannondale but yeah it's funny that it's it's not even the yeah it's just how those branding associations last uh i'm sure cannondale weren't stoked to see that even though it wasn't their bike somebody was definitely cringing at that moment mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> all right well let's uh Let's go ahead and wrap up the news portion of this show because, again, the reason why we have all these people here and the, the reason why we have, again, both Brad and Zach here today is to answer a bunch of wrenching questions here. Uh, so, what do you say? We all we all ready for some questions here? Indeed. All right. Uh, I'm just going to start reading off some questions here that we have in the chat. This one comes from uh, Gioranma. I'm not really sure what that handle is supposed to be. Uh, maybe you can fill us in. Uh, anyway, they're asking... Uh, they were saying that they're training on their bikes an average of 13 to 15 hours a week. Uh, what suggestions would we make in terms of starting a bike maintenance routine? And what would you say is the most important? Do we have any tips that we've learned along the way that you wish that you had learned sooner? Who wants to grab this one? I'm going to point to Brad.
0: Okay. Uh, I would say don't over lube it. That's a big one. I see in the shop people who ride a lot and they lube their chain after every ride, but they don't really wipe it off or clean it. Um, that's a big one. If it's a road bike, uh, you know, I see a lot of lube that's kind of migrating up the spokes and onto the rims and all over the place. And that's one of my sort of, this is an adjacent topic, but a concern of mine with road disc is, uh, when the lube kind of starts to walk around on the hub and across and getting on the rotor and contaminating pads, I would say that's kind of, a, sort of the worst case outcome of that, uh, of that practice. So if you are going to lube it a lot, um, You know, wipe it off more than you lube it. That's that's a big one. And um, check your chain wear. Check your drivetrain wear. That's one that uh, if you ride as much as that, 15 hours a week, that's a lot. Um, Even for for a pro rider, that's a a decent load. And so you're going to wear through chains quickly. And you can have a you know a chain tool that measure a chain checker that measures the wear. That would be a handy resource to make sure you're not blowing through chains and then compromising the rest of the drivetrain kind of prematurely.
2: Yeah. Uh, to add to that, I mean, I I often say that if you're scared to touch your the chain, then you're desperately in need of cleaning it and, and changing your lubing practices. So yeah, it's like it just just look at that, and if it's yeah, if it's leaving you a a cat five tattoo on your leg or or similar, then it's there's definitely room for improvement. Yeah, I mean just to go along with that, I would say like just wash the bike regularly. Like
3: not only just the drivetrain, but if you're riding that much, you're probably also using some sort of drink mix and that's gonna get all over your bike and get disgusting and sweat and everything. So yeah, just wash things regularly, keep the drivetrain clean, and then yeah, just check brake pads and chain wear and all of that kind
1: of stuff. I actually have a question about bike washing, now that you bring that up, because uh granted it's been quite a long time since I was a full time shop mechanic, but um at least I remember certainly back in when I was doing it in, in Michigan, um, there were often times when I would see a customer come in with a bike uh, needing some sort of repair. And I could always tell when the bike, well, it, oftentimes someone would come in with an, an issue that actually seemed to be brought on by the fact that they were washing their bikes almost too often. Or I wonder, like, is it even possible to wash their bike too often? Or is it more a matter of someone washing it and not drying it and preparing it afterward correctly?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think like, washing it is a wide spectrum of what you can do, right? Like some people use a garden hose and have no pressure. Some people literally go to the car wash every day after a ride and blast their bike. Um, So I would say just like wash it regularly, but you don't necessarily need to wash it every single day Um, compared to maybe like, I don't know, years ago when things weren't really sealed and everything was all cup and cone. That was a lot worse for washing bikes. Now everything for the most part is sealed cartridge bearings, but you can still wash out the grease kind of in between the frame and the bearings um if like safe sunset or something um but i would still say generally keeping things clean is better than not keeping them clean
2: Mm. i'd say how you wash it is a is a big thing but also what you wash it with uh and that's certainly something i've seen is that people that are like quite meticulous with their cleaning like they might wash their bike after every ride or or once a week it's not necessarily a problem but when they do it with like a pretty harsh chemical then you start to see things like the the anodizing of of the group set starting to strip off and and the frame starting to dull and all these other issues like you know the the bearings in the free hub body are notoriously always always getting rusty as a result of it so i'd say try to use a product that's uh designed for bicycle use or at least isn't uh isn't uh, fully harsh, find something that's like pH neutral at the bare minimum. Um, and then that way you yeah. won't have big issues. So what do you all
1: prefer to use for bike washing? I'm wondering. I would say generally I use not bike specific stuff.
3: I use like dish soap and then just get gallons of like citrus degreaser from the hardware store.
2: So Zach's Brad. doing exactly what I just said not to. No. You know, yeah, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: So the, the stuff I like to avoid, let me start with that, uh, is automotive or maybe even harsher like industrial uh, solvents to clean with, because like Dave said, those are so strong uh, that they can often affect not just what's inside bearings or, uh, you know, spinning, moving parts, but actually take the finish off of things, which in the case of plating on chains and cassettes can actually promote corrosion and weaken the metal itself. And even simple green is known to, if you let it soak some some chains with certain plating uh, material can become structurally weakened by it if it's exposed to the chemical for too long so there are some things that i like to avoid but to zach's point blue dawn dish soap and some warm water a sponge and a soft long bristled brush uh is my go-to and then i just kind of like to do a little extra with the air compressor and you know a microfiber cloth afterwards but i basically don't unless it's extremely caked in mud or something i i try to avoid pressurized water at all i'll use like a soft um you know, gentle spray of water from the hose, and then do the rest by hand with like a bucket of warm water mixed with Dawn dish soap. It's super neutral. It's okay to get it on rotors and things. I wouldn't soak them in it necessarily, but if it gets on there, it's not harmful. Um, so that's that's kind of my go-to. And if I'm traveling as a mechanic, uh, too, it's easy to find that stuff in just about any place you are in the world, and or something very you know a close approximation. And so you don't have to travel with that stuff either. So it's handy to have a product like that that works very well and um i'm not a, i'm not a user of pledge but i have a few colleagues uh who are big fans of using pledge as a bike polish uh after the cleaning was done so it's a furniture polish but it works well and smells pretty good too and um so i know some guys who are pretty pretty fond of that i like to use muck off bike protect uh as like a final wipe off um polish and it kind of leaves a film that dispel some water and dirt and stuff like that too so it's a little bit
2: and and don't follow muckoff's own directory videos by just spraying it like it's hairspray everywhere yeah (laughs) yeah
0: no (laughs) no yeah for that for that i i like to at least wrap the rotor uh rather the calipers especially the pads themselves you know kind of contain them within a rag so no overspray gets on that um so i'm conscious of that and i would be encouraging all of you to be conscious of uh among other things, contaminating your own pads—that's a huge, a huge reason that I see bikes come into the shop with uh, complaints. It's always the noise from people who've gotten lube or cleaning agents on their pads, and then we have to replace.
1: So, Dave, that's that's three
2: votes for Dawn dish soap. Mm. What do you use? Uh, not Dawn dish soap. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I, yeah, on, on bike cleans, I mean, I use uh, various degreases, ceramic speed ufo clean has been incredibly good uh smooth do a very good uh good stuff a very good degreaser which is uh kind of a pretty harsh petrochemical um with some nice perfume added to it so you think it's better for yourself than it is uh but yeah that's incredibly efficient at stripping down a chain like perfectly almost wax ready within a single application um and then yeah for for bike washing like if i just need a quick mountain bike wash i'll typically use something like muck off or something like that but generally i'm um, yeah taking drivetrains off bikes and putting them through a parts washer and then wiping down the frame so um slightly more different approach i guess than than uh, what brad and zach are probably used to with the race the race style cleaning where you're washing bikes to then send them out again
0: i would add that in the shop i do we also have a parts cleaner too so that's my that's my preferred way but if i'm out and about and need something in a in a, in a hurry that's Dawn is a it's a quality product that it does the job pretty effectively but yeah you're right there for, especially for cleaning the chain and degreasing things uh something you can source from your bike shop is probably going to work well it's usually bike specific and therefore safe for all the applications you would use it for on a bike
2: yeah yeah like i i've got no issue with using more uh, readily available chemicals and stuff it's just in my experience the um the the way that uh, some of these bike specific detergents and degreases actually wash off um the yeah just uh they're they're a bit more sophisticated so they really do lift up the dirt and 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 wash off with a rinse whereas some of the more petrochemical based stuff tends to linger around on the chain and keep it a bit feeling a bit oily or or even streaky looking so that's why I, i go with some of the uh the more expensive stuff
1: all right fair enough well i think uh I guess the the moral of the story here for that that level of riding is basically just try and keep your bike clean and properly lubricated at this point, and then the the rest should hopefully fall into place pretty well. Um, let's move on to the next question here. This one comes from Evan T. Um, I'm very curious to hear your takes on this one. So Evan's having some issues with SRAM shifting up front, specifically with SRAM Red on an S Works Athos. Uh, He says he's taken it to three local mechanics who are all top-level pros. He's even tried following the videos SRAM has and tried himself. Use all their official tools, yada, yada, yada. His question is... I'm I'm just going to say this verbatim. His question is, does SRAM front-shifting actually suck that much, or could it be an Aethos issue, given how light the frame is and maybe the front derailleur mount? I've yet to drop a single chain on the Dura-Ace setup I swapped to. Who wants to grab this one?
3: I would say that it's... Not an athos problem to start out with. Because those use essentially the same front derailleur mount that bolts on as the Tarmac, which is like a solid chunk of aluminum that bolts onto the frame, not some super lightweight carbon molded into the frame that flexes a lot more where the front derailleur mounts. So, But I would say not an athos problem. I would say maybe Stram isn't not that bad, but it can be very finicky
0: setting up. I would agree with uh, with that. it's not an ethos problem. Uh, it is quite a sensitive adjustment, even in all the ones I've set up. I still like to go ride it to verify that I'm confident that it's working to my satisfaction. Um, I find the little guide kind of little lines that they have on the derailleur cage themselves don't seem to line up exactly <laughs> the way that they say they should. When um,
3: parallel. Right.
0: when you're going through their own setup, yeah, it's not quite parallel. Um, so I it, it's a bit of a touch game. And uh, unfor- I can't say that th- I have a standard set of protocols that this is exactly what to do and it will work perfectly every time. It's a bit of a sensitive system. I think it's a widely discussed topic. There are some meme accounts <laughs> devoted to this topic uh, without going into too great of a detail on that. Um, but it is a sensitive thing. And I would say, too, my experience compared to dura is that Durace is uh, hard to beat, uh, in that regard so what would you two recommend to
1: anyone out there who is having issues with sram road shifting be it red or force or rifle or whatever um because it does it it's clearly not something that's a that's a one-off um and i i would agree that it is certainly more finicky um however i i can't say that in in the however many sram red bikes i've ridden that that i am yeah regularly dropping chains up front. So, I mean, I know it can work well. So, uh, in those situations where you have to be a little bit more hands-on and a little bit more nitpicky and, like, kind of touchy-feely as far as getting the thing to work, what do you do? I
3: mean, so, stream they have, like Brad was talking about, they have the lines on the derailleur that you're supposed to line it up with, and then they have, I think they came out with it a year or so ago, like, a little plastic thing to help set up the front derailleur position. That's all, I would say, for, like, a starting point. Right, like that's going to get you in a decent starting point, and then if it works, then everything is great. Sometimes, as you tighten it, it'll shift. Like even with their little, the little guide thing, the plastic part. Um, So I would, yeah, like on that system, I would say like a quarter of a turn of a limit screw is enough to make it not shift at all into the big ring or throw it over off the big ring. So it's like like it's just very sensitive, like Brad said, and it's a bit of trial and error, and also I would say just. A lot of experience setting up those exact derailleurs.
2: yeah i i went through a series i had i think three or four test bikes in a row that all had SRAM force on them this is probably a year or two ago uh, and each one was set up by the company to be ready for media use i guess and and each one through the chain um and in every case i was able to adjust the derailleur to stop it from doing that and to still shift well so i'd say just fundamentally there's because they're so finicky uh and i guess because the setup's a little bit different to say a shimano derailleur um it does seem like it's it's pretty widespread for them to not be perfectly adjusted uh yeah and and i think in my experience it it, you can adjust it to work and to be a reliable system it just is a lot harder than it perhaps should be
0: yeah i have it on i have it on two bikes um And it does work. I took uh, maybe a ride to make sure I was satisfied with the setup and the performance uh, after I assembled each one. Um, I also am not above using a chain watcher, and I kind of recommend it because that big ring to the small ring is uh, the one that I find to be the more unpredictable one, um, unless you want to set your limit up kind of aggressively tight where it's maybe dragging a little bit in the easiest combination of gears. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of like they give you a set of guidelines and little tools and gadgets to help you set it up, but both on that, on the front derailleur, on the roadside and the Eagle derailleur, uh, with their various, uh, tools that they've had over the years to help with the B gap setup, I think it's kind of like a suggestion and then you have to do a little bit of interpretive, uh, kind of touchy feely stuff to actually get it to work with your own Because I think there's so much variability with bikes themselves that, uh, having one set, setup um for every bike that exists that you could put it on is not exactly um realistic
2: yeah one one other kind of off the side issue that i've seen is um shram cranks are actually the where the pedal fits in is actually narrower than say a shimano Uh, and because of that that's why they that's one of the reasons why they provide pedal washes is to sort of space out the pedal a little bit because especially with look pedals which have a really extended threaded section If you don't use those washers, the pedal, um, the threaded section can actually extend past the backside of the crank arm and can actually hook up on the chain when you're in like kind of extreme gears, like a big ring in your 10 tooth or big ring in the the 12. Uh, so as a result of that, uh, you can actually kind of get the skipping or even a thrown chain just purely from the chain catching the pedal. Um, so that's something that I've seen probably more than you'd expect, um, I also personally forgot about that and broke a set of Garmin power meters doing that. But uh, yeah, it's uh, something to watch for.
1: All right. Well, let's move on to the next question here. So um, unfortunately, with this RAM front shifting thing, uh, yeah, I think the conclusion that we came to is it's just a bit of a touch and go sort of thing and lots and lots of very, very fine tuning. So uh, not unfortunately, I don't know what else we have to suggest for that one. Moving on to the next question. This one comes from Patty, who is – he says he's a roadie, um, but uh, says he and his son are starting to get into mountain biking. They have relatively cheap hardtails. They're looking for some pointers on starting to get the front suspension fork set up and how how they should play with the characteristics to learn how they make a difference. To add to the fun, he's 98 kilos. His kid's 35 kilos. Thankfully they're not riding the same bike. So what, 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 uh, what suggestions will we have here for getting some basic front suspension setup stuff?
0: Uh, I, I would say start with, um, with a sag, the sag setting. So this, since there's two of two people involved, that's a good place to start, uh where one person can sit on their bike. You really want to shoot for, it's you know, I would say 15 to 20%, which is usually about the same in millimeters on a cross country bike. Uh, of sag. And you, obviously you can, there's a lot you can do with things like volume spacers in the fork to kind of tune the suspension characteristics beyond that. So, um, I like to actually run mine a little bit on the softer side with some volume spacers so that it ramps up a bit toward the bottom of the stroke and kind of gives you the so-called bottomless feeling. Um, but I find that especially for lightweight forks, cross country forks, uh, having slightly lower pressure gives their kind of sensitivity a little bit of a, a boost. Uh, so, you know, most of the most of the inputs to a fork on a cross-country bike are going to be relatively small. And then there's a few big ones along the way too, big hits that might use the full stroke. Um, but I kind of like to play to what is happening most of the time. And so I'll, I'll try to keep the top end kind of soft and as active and sensitive as possible um so running kind of on the light side of the pressure recommendation perhaps on the fork leg or with a full 20 percent of sag and then kind of tune the stroke of the fork with volume spacers and if you have compression adjustment you can do a little bit with that as well
2: brad can you uh i guess go in a bit more detail like the process of setting sag like what you're what you're looking for what you what you do to get there
0: Sure. Yeah. Um, so you, first of all, you want if you have lockout, uh, or, you know, if you have a specialized with a brain fork, for example, you want to turn that all the way off or unlock the fork completely. Um, you want to assume the position of that you would actually be in sitting on the bike riding. If you have two people, um, you know, maybe one of you is standing by ready to set the little rubber ring on the stanchion that's there to help gauge, uh, how much stroke you're getting or how much sag you're getting, um, so, you know, ride around or at least sit on the bike and kind of wiggle around on it so you're settling into the suspension and, like, assuming a natural posture on the bike. Uh, if you're going to be very specific, I would wear all the stuff you would wear on a normal ride so that you're at your true weight. Um, and then, yeah, and then you basically set the little rubber ring if you have one or you can use a zip tie around the stanchion if you if your fork doesn't have that ring anymore. Um, and then hop off with that ring set basically on top of the fork seal while you're seated there. Uh, Basically you want to measure a lot of forks now actually have a little gradation on the stanchion kind of printed there, but either way you can measure to achieve roughly 20% of the full stroke of your fork. So if it's hundred mil fork, then 20% is 20 millimeters. So you're kind of shooting for that um, amount of sag as you're, as you're seated there. And so of course, yeah, go ahead.
2: Uh, just to add to that, like uh, the, the whole hopping off thing is sort of where I see most people get it wrong is that they sort of uh, shift their weight and often load up the front to jump off the bike and then that'll push you deeper into the travel and in the end you'll end up with firmer suspension than you should because you're you're adjusting for that. So um, yeah, it's sort of, there's a bit of a technique. You kind of want to either fall <laughs> effectively off to the side of the bike where you're not loading up the suspension anymore or, or uh, ideally you can kind of climb off the back of it where you're not putting more weight onto the front of the bike. Um, Maybe if you have a dropper
0: post, it's a good time to deploy it too. You can kind of creep down yeah. and off the back without uh, affecting that yeah. how much sag you've got in the front.
2: Yep, for
3: sure. Mm-hmm. Zach, anything
0: to add? I mean, you just said it was a relatively
3: cheap fork, so that kind of limits... It's hard to say what it is exactly, but like so a lot of cheaper forks have a lot less adjustments, so generally the air spring, and that's going to be the bulk of adjustment that you've got. Sometimes not even... the. Yeah. And then the rebound to make sure that it's not a pogo stick.
0: <laughs> yeah. I like to yeah. do, uh, as far as the rebound side of life, uh, you know, I like to set it up pretty neutral. Um, basically kind of the the very basic adjustment is so that it doesn't feel like it's like you said, pogoing or pushing you up and off, uh, you know, almost off the ground, especially for rear suspension. You can really feel that where it pushes you almost off the saddle when the rebound is too high or too fast. And, um, But then when you actually go out and ride it the first time, maybe dedicate one ride to really kind of fiddling with the knobs on your fork uh, or your shock or both. And maybe make some kind of wide range of adjustments, maybe five clicks one way or the other way, if you have that many. Um, And just kind of like see what slowing it down a lot feels like or speeding it up a little bit feels like and then kind of work your way to a happy medium. And there's definitely circumstances, different tracks or different conditions where you might change your rebound setting, you know, from one day to the next without changing air pressure for example um, but you kind of once you find your happy starting place you at least have a reference point to make small adjustments going forward
2: yeah uh, cool. and that sounds like a good place to start yeah uh and just on on zach's point like uh i mean patty said these are relatively cheap hardtails there is still a price point that gets you into air forks which then everything we've just discussed is applicable to but up till say 1200 australian i guess in the u.s it's probably like 800 dollars you're still seeing a lot of coil sprung forks which don't give you much in the way of adjustment they might have a lockout to turn them off they might have rebound adjust to to control what Brad was talking about with adjusting out the pogo effect but typically you're locked into this this coil spring and the range of adjustment on that coil spring is is very limited um you can change to different weight springs but but typically at that lower end it's can be quite tough to find the actual springs to change to. So uh, if in those cases, it's, it's probably just a compromise of not having the best ride experience. Well, moving on to
1: a question where there certainly would be a lot more adjustability. Uh, this one comes from Richie C. This one's specifically for Brad. Uh, he's wondering, how does he set up his old 2021 Scott Spark to run 120 mils of rear suspension under the radar? <laughs>
0: oh. Um well, <clears throat> these were there were some customer triangles made and, and rocker links made, so it's gonna be a little bit tricky for you to do that. I I think you could theoretically, although getting these parts is a different story, uh use the rear end from a nine hundred, the Spark nine hundred, which is the one twenty mil spec production bike. Um what we were using on the team was a little bit different uh than that, and they had basically there was like a chain state or a seat state kind of bridge molded into the rear triangle that was relocated slightly and made thinner so it could clear the seat tube uh, at full compression. And the rocker link was a little bit of uh, change slightly geometrically to, okay. to kind of feel, I guess, feel the same as in terms of the kind of rate of uh, the spring rate or the compression rate of the rear end feeling more like the 100 mil version of the bike so it ramped up quite a bit towards the bottom in other words um so it didn't f- quite feel like the 900 did but uh it was kind of a precursor to the new scott spark that came out in i guess 2022 is the model year um is basically kind of an external version of the what is now internal in that bike in terms of what the link kind of geometry was so Unfortunately, it's not as straightforward as simply just you know buying a part that's sold. It was a little bit of a team uh, special treatment that uh, allowed that to be possible. So,
2: so the easy answer is to befriend Friszy.
0: Yeah, befer- become very <laughs> fast. Befriend Frischi, Uh or bo- yeah, one or one or both. Okay. Yeah, one option is to yeah. buy a bike at the end of the season. The other is uh, be a sponsored athlete.
1: Mm, either way, not an easy fix. All right. Uh, this is an interesting one. This one comes from Derek Lewis. Uh, Derek says he's a home mechanic who only builds wheels every so often, but he's found that his spoke prep has dried up between builds. Uh, I was wondering if anyone has tried to reactivate spoke prep by adding a little water or something. Uh, he said that that little tub is about 40 bucks, and he said he's probably got three pairs of wheels built on built from that tub, and he's hoping to divide by four at least. What do we have for suggestions here? And I'm, de- I'm definitely very familiar with this issue, although it's been quite a while since I've used actual spoke prep.
3: Yeah, I mean, if it's actual
1: spoke prep, that'd be a question for WheelSmith. But I've never heard of someone reactivating it because it does become kind of like powdery almost. If, when it's it like chalky, out. hardens up,
0: or like like yeah, like a thick chalk. <laughs> I know, I know it. Ha- I know it, I've, I've experienced this. But I've never tried to to salvage <laughs> it. Um, my my gut would be that it would it would probably work, but I would hesitate to say that uh, due to a number of liability and other reasons if I was going to advise somebody else to do yeah. it, you know, but, <laughs> yeah. um, it seems like it probably could work. You could try it a little bit, you know, just like get a little piece and drop a little drop of water on there and see what happens. Uh, but I've never, never tried.
1: I mean, ultimately what we're talking about is just whatever carrier or solvent Wheelsmith uses in there just evaporates a little bit over the time. Maybe if that container is not fully sealed up or whatever, um, but yeah, without actually knowing what that solvent is, I'd be pretty hesitant to recommend putting anything in there. And I guess the issue is, even if you can figure out what the solvent is, the trick would be putting in the right amount, first and foremost, and then also getting it mixed evenly so it's not like watery in one spot and super hard and chunky in another one. Um, so that, unfortunately, I don't think we have any suggestions for you there. And unless Wheelsmith Smith can give you some more information, unfortunately, you might be a little bit out of luck uh, someone else further down in the chat also suggested, uh, maybe switching over to linseed oil. Um, that is something that I have certainly used in the past for wheel builds. It's not quite as nice. I would say as, as spoke prep, uh, it doesn't dry as quickly. Uh, it takes quite a while to dry actually, but, um, but it's way, 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 way cheaper. And if it, if it dries out you just go to the hardware store and get another bottle.
3: And I'd say if you're using spoke prep and having this issue regularly, that, they- Package comes with two two little tubs of the same thing, just in different color. Instead of opening both of them so they both go bad, I would just leave one closed and fully sealed and just use the same color for all the different smoke links to make it last a little bit longer.
2: It's funny It's funny you say that, Zach, because from memory, one of the colors tends to dry out quicker than the other. I can't remember which I'd, way around it is, I do, but in my yeah, experience. I like, it's,
1: kind of like light blue and tan? Yeah, or something. yeah it's
2: like blue and sense? yellow. Yeah. I think, yeah. I can't remember which one dries out noticeably quicker, but one of them does, so. Um, anyway, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh, man. Anyway, Derek, I wish we had better suggestions for you, but um, maybe just try reaching out to Will Smith and hope for the best and see what you can find out. Uh, if you do find out, let us know. Um, next question. Uh, this one comes from Andrew W. This is also in related to wheel building. Uh, wondering if we have any recommend- recommendations for wheel building tools and any tips on truing wheels with dynamo hubs. Mm. Uh, I guess the first thing I would say is I'm not really sure why truing a wheel with a dynamo hub would be much different aside from the fact that, uh, this, the flange geometry is a little bit different. Um, but aside from that, I mean, truing well, a wheel with a dynamo. Cause is they have
3: resistance. So sometimes I've seen them where they kind of like to walk out of the truing stand when you spin the wheel.
1: Yeah. Okay. But I mean, I, that's really, he's talking about
3: truing wheels with dynamo, not building
1: right. Correct. So that would be what I would interpret that to be. I mean, but I guess most stands are let you lock in a hub pretty reasonably well, though, don't they? Yeah. Anyway, all right. But As far as wheel building tools, though, what do we have for recommendations here? That's a Dave, uh, Dave question. <laughs> Dave, you do not get to recommend a P&K Leah wheel stand. Uh, I don't stand. even like them, so that's fine. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, we've, we've been pretty pleased with the uh, Abbey Harbor Dishing Gauge, the Abbey Bike Tools uh, Dish Gauge. That's a wonderful well-made item. Um, it's a pleasure to use, obviously, like most of their tools are. <clears> the <throat> Tenshi- spoke, uh, tensiometer is pretty crucial. Um, a lot of practice is the other part.
2: Dave, any suggestions here? Uh, I mean, there's a lot of really nice tools in the wheel building, wheel building space. I'd say there's actually like wheel building tool specialists as well. These days, uh, like there, it really is its own category. And, and yeah, I guess, Starting with the fundamentals like you a good truing stand that lets you lock the wheel in and measure it without it wobbling around is is pretty important uh at least not crucial but but definitely helps uh and yeah a nice dishing tool is great uh just speeds up the process rather than relying on your your turing stand for that task uh and then yeah the the tension the tension meter uh even like a basic park tool one will get you. Pretty really close but once you start building high-end wheels and frequently then something with better ergonomics and and more accuracy suddenly pays off uh and there's a lot in that space that one i do use a pk and Lee for um because i'm fancy and it has brass bits on it and it and it's lovely to use <laughs> uh but yeah there's there's lots of options in that space and frankly i, I quite comfortably recommend the park tool to people just doing it on a home mechanic basis.
1: Yeah, one thing I'll say is, as far as building wheels, kind of more casually, um, I would say that to, to save your money and not spend a ton on like a really, really nice truing stand. Because in my experience, as far as building goes, those seem to help a little bit. As far as um, they can sometimes help as far as speed, um, but as far as the the accuracy and the the, the wheel build quality and stuff, I and mean, like Dave recommended, I'd say the, the the like the the spoke wrenches and the and the tensiometers are
2: to me anyway, m- more important than, than the stand itself. Yeah. Yeah. And it's especially like, yeah, you you don't need a stand necessarily to lace up a wheel. It's just purely for the, the tension and, and all that. And yeah, the, the professional stands, the main benefit they have other than holding a wheel really securely is that a lot of the the better premium stands are very quick to adjust between different hub types. And that's something a shop has to deal with. Whereas a home mechanic, you can kind of take the time and uh, adapt whatever hub you have in whatever janky way you choose to, to fit your stand. So uh, um, that's, yeah, uh, I'd say that's sort of the why shop mechanics need better turing better stands than, than home mechanics do. Um, that said, uh, if you really want to go all out, uh, I've been very impressed <laughs> by the no- Noble Wheels lacing jig, um, which is a, is a tool that holds your, your rim and hub separately and, and horizontally to the bench and uh, lets you basically hands-free lace up a wheel and take your time and, uh, without having to have it on your lap. Um, total, total luxury, but a game-changer if you're, if you're building wheels regularly, uh, or if you're like me and just have a problem with tools and buying them, then uh, it's nice to have. Dave, I still don't understand how you physically have the space for all of these things. They're, they're, they're spread across multiple locations. <laughs> All right,
1: next question that we have. Uh, this one comes from J underscore Barky. Uh, ooh, rough situation. It sounds like here. Any suggestions for a stripped rear through axle dropout? He said he's using currently using a longer through axle with a twelve by one mil nut. Hmm. Do we have any thoughts on this? Can you even can you even use a helicoil on? Like, did they make that size? Oh, that's what
3: I was gonna say like it depends how stripped it is. If it's just like the first couple threads, then you could probably run a tap through it from the other side but if it's completely gone then sounds pretty stripped yeah you might <laughs> might be game over yeah,
0: i was going to say what what your what your your current solution is is the only thing i could i mean if it's as stripped as it sounds like it is running a nut on one side but it's not pretty
1: it sounds yeah that's not pretty stripped and uh and actually uh he said that he had emailed the question also and and in that email he had mentioned that it's a canyon grail al canyon grail al um, and uh, he's also a little bit concerned that there's not a whole lot of room to run a coil anyway because uh, it, might interfere with, yeah, it might interfere with how, how the hanger is held on.
3: Yeah, maybe see if you can get a discounted frame from Canyon.
1: ooh <laughs> yeah, that sounds like not, not an ideal situation at all. I wish we had better suggestions. Oh, yep, update all the threads,
2: all the threads are gone. Oh, yeah, then nuts um, I would it's a sad day. I I would say it's if you really want to keep that frame going, it'd probably be worth chatting to like a frame builder who probably has a mill or a lathe and can probably custom make you a helicoil, like like shorten the length of the helicoil to match perfectly. Um, it's probably going to be beyond the scope of most bike shops, though. Uh, as far as the concern that a helicoil might not handle
1: the, that that regular amount of use, uh, I wouldn't worry about that at all. Actually, because uh, I would say that if uh any time that I've seen a heel coil installed properly um partially because those threads are now steel, uh those things actually end up being oftentimes more durable than the original aluminum threads, so that shouldn't be a concern if it's done well um, we are well, I guess we're coming up to the end of the show here, and Brad, I actually have a question for you uh <laughs> so i'm gonna and and actually maybe uh maybe Zach as well, so I maybe maybe put both of you on the spot since you both have an awful lot of experience working as a race mechanic um for anyone who was watching that World Cup event in No Mesto' particularly the the women's x c o event um we did see uh Evie Richards have an issue with her rear wheel change it seemed uh well it seemed a little slow, but it also seemed to have some sort of hiccup with how it was set up as far as the what what gear it was in the, the chain skipped right from the get go um I mean, again, well, I, I don't, I'm not looking for you to sort of criticize one of your fellow mechanics exactly, but can, is there any way that you can tell sort of what went wrong and what could have been done differently?
0: Yes. Uh, so a couple of things first, I think, um, it's possible that he was sort of caught a little bit surprised. She kind of approached perhaps the flat hat, the, the section right before that tech zone, there's a pretty wild rock garden, um, so she tagged a rock there and there was no one around to communicate to the mechanic. He may have been caught a little bit by surprise um, knowing that she was out in front and because there's a part of the track that passes sort of behind uh, that tech zone and then does a little short loop, climbs up a hill and comes back through the tech zone proper. Um, so you probably saw that Evie had a comfortable lead. Um, she was way off the front and then came through at the flat. So it's possible, first of all, that he didn't expect it. Of course, I wouldn't necessarily say that's, an excuse you should kind of always be ready for things to go wrong until you know the race is over but uh what it looks like happened to me so it looked like there was a bit of a struggle kind of scrambling to kind of address the just getting the wheel out part of the process but then obviously we saw when she hopped on the bike to pedal away once it was finally sorted uh the chain was off and so oftentimes when you have the cage locked on a SRAM derailleur like she has um, you know, it creates plenty of slack in the chain, so you can easily remove the rear wheel. Oftentimes, though, when you kind of move the rear derailleur out of the way of the cassette to drop the wheel, um, with some slack there, if the chain then falls off, kind of the teeth of the chainring just a little bit. Like if one or two of those teeth, as they you know come across the chainstay to meet the chainring, if those teeth aren't engaged, and then you pedal, it pedals the chain right off the whole chainring, uh, which appears to be what this is exactly what happened there. So um, when you have the luxury of two mechanics uh, handy in the, in the zone with like a helper. So if I had a, a person in there with me in the past, I would often have that person uh, be holding the front of the bike and just keeping a little gentle forward pressure on the, on the drive side pedal to keep the chain there because that can happen so easily. I've seen it happen. Not just to EV. It's rare that you see it, the person winning the race, have it happen and then lose the race. That was a, unbelievable moment kind of but uh but that is uh kind of a known thing I guess and uh and so I was always conscious to have somebody and there's there's some videos on my own Instagram uh where I'm doing some various things uh like that in the tech zone that have um involved at times a friend and you can there's one recently uh at the top of my profile which is when we had to swap a rear derailleur on Kate's bike when she broke one in a race. And I have a friend of mine, Gavin, who's a mechanic from another team, who was there just to hold the pedal forward while I was doing all the swapping around because I had the chain broken at one point to disconnect everything, put it back on. So he just kept a little pressure on the front pedal, like the forward pedal on the drive side to keep the chain engaged with the teeth throughout the whole process so that that very thing would not happen. So that's that to me was what it was. It wasn't a slip. Was, There's was a lot of comments, oh, SRAM has this new $3,500 drive drain and it's slipping. But that I feel like was a bit of a maybe a, a poor choice of words by uh, whoever posted the video and referred to it as a slip of the chain, which in fact it wasn't, it was just the fact the chain itself was not engaged correctly in the first place. And she peddled it right off the chain ring when she took off. So, um, but that was one of the, one of the times you wish you didn't get any attention as a mechanic, I think, because, you know, it can <laughs> happen. These things do happen. They happen more often than people see, because it's not usually the world, you know, a, a former world champion winning a world cup race, uh, who, who you see on video when it happens, and so usually it's you know it's off camera somewhere, but I feel for the guy uh, I know he's a very solid mechanic actually I know him um and so I you know it's maybe not his best his proudest moment, but uh, I'm sure he'll never forget it and we'll probably not ever make that mistake again either uh
1: I think that's probably fair to say, and again not not necessarily to put him on the spot because of course things things happen um but uh but yeah certainly an interesting thing to watch and kind of dissect a little bit from 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 our perspective anyway. Um Brad I'm going to ask you one last question before we sign off for this episode. Um one of our questions that we had here from our live audience uh was related to uh I guess maybe sort of like the legendary race mechanic fable now almost as far as you having to replace Kate's uh Kate's yes. brake lever in the middle of yes. a race one time. Uh what happened there and why did you have a brake lever on hand anyway? Like is that something that you prepared
0: for? Like how did that well, happen? Okay, that's it's a, I'll try to make it a shorter story. Um, so what happened? She, it was, I think the second lap of the race this was also at Nova Mesto 2021, if I'm not mistaken. And, um, she was off, she was off to, is that right? Um, I think so. She was off to a good start and, uh, uh, she, she crashed. She kind of got like the front wheel sort of caught between two roots So she was going one way and the wheel kind of got yanked the other way. And so she fell. She actually ended up breaking her arm in this crash, which we found out a couple, like two days later, but, uh, she, Nevertheless, finished the race, so good for her. Um, but in the process, uh, either on the ground or on the top tube, um, she managed to kind of snap the brake lever all the way, like, back, you know, so not, like, pulling it towards the bar, but the other direction, where it basically, like, broke from its spring and sort of mounting point. So the, the derailleur, or the brake lever was just sort of dangling vertically down from the bar with no spring, and the plunger had been, like, ripped out, What? but basically pushes fluid in the master cylinder of the brake lever. So it was total game over. I had the luxury, first of all, people telling me that she'd had a crash and then I could run to a part of the track where I could actually see her pass before she got to where I was in the tech zone. Of course you can't service anybody anywhere, but in the tech zone. So I just had to kind of go check it out, see what I could come up with um, and then think about it, what I was going to do. Uh, so I saw how the lever looked. i knew that wasn't going to be something that I could repair or at least not repair any quicker than doing what I ended up doing. Um, but in the time I had, I had probably two minutes before maybe three minutes before she appeared uh, in the tech zone. And uh, so I, I do bring fully bled brake sets to the tech zone, like a caliper hose and brake lever fully bled. Um, normally I would release in my, anticipation of this moment ever happening uh which it has only happened this one time i thought i would use just like a complete hose caliper brake lever and do all that and just strap it down the zip ties to the outside of the frame like cut it at both ends and just go from there um but <clears throat> when i was sort of rehearsing my moves in my mind as she was you know on her way uh I kind of, it's it's very difficult to access those brake caliper bolts and they're Loctited very heavily and there's, you know, it was muddy. And, uh, I was thinking to myself, you know, in the interest of speed, am I going to realistically be able to like get those Loctited bolts out with like a, you know, little T handle kind of like twisting them down there between the seat stay and trying to access that while she's like jiggling the bike around and it's covered in mud. And so I kind of thought to myself, well, if I'm careful then disconnect this already bled system and have a bled lever in my hand that is full, you know, SRAM has like the, stealth in the jig fitting where it kind of opens the reservoir when you tighten the compression nut and actually make the connection there uh, between the hose and all of them and then the lever itself into the master cylinder. So the trick is to not spill any oil out of the hose when you disconnect the lever in the first place. So the, the video that I have posted and that most people have seen, uh, it's sped up, but I was pretty like slow on purpose to make sure I was like handling it. Didn't like flick the hose and then like launch a few drops of fluid out and create a big air bubble in within the system that I wouldn't have been able to bleed. So I basically just had a blood system on the bike, a blood system in my kit of parts in the tech zone, disconnected the blood lever, kept the kind of open end of the lever body facing vertically. I had a helper. It's actually frisky. Um, The manager was holding that for me while I was working. Uh, Disconnected the old one, but was very careful when I removed the hose from the old brake lever to keep all the fluid that was in there in there. Um, And then was able to reconnect it and not drop anything on the ground, which was the true miracle of the day uh, (laughs) and got it all back together. But it worked perfectly. It worked for like a week. I didn't ever uh, really need to even bleed it. I did for posterity, but it was super solid and, um, and it worked great. And so um, unfortunately she didn't flatted the next lap. So I had uh, another uh, issue to deal with <laughs> later in the race, but the <laughs> brake lever was a success.
1: Man. Well, like I said, I think that should go down in race mechanic history at this point. <laughs> I haven't point. seen that one before or since. Um, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we should wrap up this episode. Uh, thanks to Zach and Brad, both of you for being on, for being our pro mechanic guests here. Uh thanks to everyone who is listening in, who is uh, participating in our live audience here. Uh this episode will be edited and posted uh, as usual to the Escape Collective and Geek Warning channels. Um and as I said earlier in the show, if you're if you're not already a member of Escape Collective, please go ahead and do so um, because it does get you does get you access to this sort of thing and also our commenting system and um all sorts of other perks with the website. Um however Uh, I should also mention that we're going to be doing these live episodes again like every month or two, depending on how the schedule works out. Um, But uh, they're pretty fun. So I would highly recommend you joining in. Uh, And if you have not already given us a rating or review on iTunes, please, please do so. It really is quite helpful. Uh, And with that, that's all I've got. So unless anyone's got anything else to add, we'll see you next week. Thanks, as always, for listening. Cheers. Thank you. Bye.